Hallelujah. But we are here to talk about our series in the beginning. And uh, if you've been here over the month of June, you will know that this is part four of the series. It's the final part of the series. And um, we called it in the beginning, God's purpose unfolds. And as you know, we've been camping in Genesis. In fact, we've been camping in the first three chapters of Genesis to just understand how God's purpose was unfolded right from the beginning. And you will recall that when God unfolds His purpose, the first thing He did is He showed us that when He created mankind, when He created Adam and Eve, He didn't just create them like He created all the other creational beings. He created us differently. Our bodies might be made of the same materials. We might all have mind, will, and emotions, but there's one thing that separates us from the rest of God's creation. And that's that He breathed His Spirit into us. That He created us in His image. And so, we were different. God created us differently, and He treated us differently because He created us with His image so that He could have an intimate relationship with us. And we see that in Genesis. We see that every single day, He would walk with Adam and Eve. He would commune with them in the garden. They would share together. They would love together. They would laugh together. They would dream together because God created you and I to have an intimate relationship with Him. And He gave Adam and Eve a mandate. He gave them a purpose. He said, you are to fill the earth and subdue it. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And last week, Pastor Carol shared, was Pastor Carol here as well? Lareko, last week, Lareko shared uh, on how God's mandate is for us to be fruitful and multiply, and how that looked in the Old Testament, and how that looked in the New Testament. But as we all know, that came to a very sudden end. All was going well until the serpent rocked up and tempted and convinced Adam and Eve that they were missing out. And he convinced them to do the only thing that God commanded them not to do, and that's to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as soon as they did that, they committed high treason. They sold out, and two things happened. Number one, they lost that intimate relationship with the Father. And number two, they handed over their mandate to Satan, and they gave him control over the earth, which they were meant to subdue. The beautiful thing, though, folks, is that God's plan from the very, very beginning was to say, how can I restore Adam and Eve How can I restore mankind back into an intimate relationship with me? How can I restore the mandate back to mankind where it belongs? And God knew that in order for that to happen, restoration could only take place if there was redemption from the power of sin. And so what we're going to do today as we wrap up this series is we're going to look at God's master plan for redemption. And what we're going to see, folks, is we're going to see a beautiful scarlet thread of redemption weaving right through the Word of God, starting in Genesis and going all the way through to Revelation. One master plan, one thread, one message consistent from beginning to end. And why is this important? This is important because so many people think of the Word of God as two different books put together in one cover. So many people think of the Old Testament as God kind of going, 
Okay, this caught me by surprise. What are we going to do? Okay, let's try this thing called the law. Ah, that doesn't quite work. Okay, let's scrap the Old Testament. Let's try Jesus. Ah, okay, great. That seems to work. Now, folks, if we've got that view of the Word of God, we're going to have an erroneous understanding of what God's plan for redemption really is. Because Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law. I did not come to say that is the wrong way. I came to fulfill the law. And so when we have the right understanding of the Word of God, we're going to see a beautiful, consistent message of redemption starting in Genesis and going all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the letters, and ending in Revelation. And by guys, this is why I'm not surprised that the book of Genesis, probably more than any other book of the Bible, comes under the greatest amount of criticism. Why? Because, I mean, you've heard the criticism. Come on, those are fairy tales. Maybe there's good principles in there, but you don't really believe that there was a God and, and that there was, you know, Adam and Eve and that there was a serpent and that, you know, the, the, there was a tree. And there, Come on, principles maybe, but come on, you don't really think all that stuff's true, right? You know why that is so dangerous? The enemy knows that if he can attack the foundation, the entire structure is questionable. The enemy knows that if he can discredit the beginning, if he can cast doubt on the beginning, on the, how trustworthy the beginning is, well, then how do you rely on the rest of the Word of God? And how many people have you heard, they start saying, okay, I want to understand the Christianity. They start in Genesis, they get through the first 10 chapters, and they go, no, there's no ways this can be right, and they put it to one side. But you see, folks, they're reading it with the wrong lenses. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to understand some of the lenses by which we need to read the Word of God. Read the Old Testament and see how it is fulfilled in the New Testament. But before we can do that, I need to share with you two important biblical principles. But before I do that, I rather want to share with you an understanding that Jesus had of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that understanding is simply this. That the Old Testament is not different from the New Testament in the sense that God decided to start again. But the Old Testament is divided from the New Testament by a single event. An event that has got such historical significance that it split the world's timeline in two. Before Christ, B.C. and A.D. Jesus Christ arrives on this planet and it is so significant that our timeline forever has changed. Whether you call it B.C., and A.D. or B.C.E. and C.E., because I saw my son's latest history textbook. They call it the Common Era and before the Common Era. Look, I don't care what you call it. What separates them is one man, Jesus Christ. And that's why every single time we write the date down, 2018, 2018, we are declaring that it is 2018 years since Jesus arrived on this planet. And that is a great statement of faith. So what are some of these things that we now need to understand? What we need to understand is that Adam was made righteous in the same way that you and I are made righteous, but with one difference. Adam was made righteous when he said, I trust you, Father. I have my faith because I know that I look forward to a time when my Redeemer will save me. Just like you and I, folks, we apply our faith, but not looking forward to the cross. We now look back to that exact same event 
And we are made righteous when our faith is applied in what has already been done for us. All right. Now, two important principles of biblical interpretation so that we can understand where God's taking us today. The first one I want to share with you is what's called types and shadows. What are types and shadows? Well, firstly, a type is an illustration of biblical truth which is fulfilled in the New Testament. In other words, we will see certain things in the Old Testament. In other words, the type we're going to look at today is Isaac and his life and when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice him. And we're going to see how Isaac is a very beautiful picture and illustration of a fulfillment of Jesus going to the cross and giving his life for you and I. What's a shadow? A shadow, how many of you know that if you're kind of walking along and there's, you know, coming to a corner and you see a shadow approaching, a shadow gives you a glimpse, it gives you an outline of what's coming. In other words, you can probably see whether it's a man or a woman, you can see whether it's big, whether it's a tall or short or maybe fat or thin, but you can't see the details like, uh, you know, the color of his hair or whether he's smiling or frowning. And so we will see that the Old Testament is full of these shadows, these things that point to, they create kind of an outline, they create an image, but they don't give us all the details. So you're going to say to me, but where is Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament? Well, you won't find his name anywhere, but you'll see plenty of types, plenty of shadows that point so clearly to Jesus that you're going to wonder, how did the Jews ever miss it when he walked amongst them? The second law that I want to share with you is what's called the law of first mention. Now, the law of first mention is a very, very important law when you study the Bible because it is the first time, what the law of first mention says is that the first time a doctrine of truth is introduced, it sets out the inherent meaning, the inherent principle, and purpose for that doctrine. And so, when God introduces the doctrine of redemption, we need to pay very careful attention to the first time it's introduced in God's Word because that's going to give us a lot of the clues as to how that is going to be consistently applied throughout the Word of God, which is another reason why the enemy attacks the book of Genesis like he has. And so, today, by the end of our service, what we're going to see is we're going to see that God's redemption plan was initiated by him immediately. He didn't wait 2,000 years 1,000 years, five days, he initiated that plan immediately. The moment Adam and Eve blew it, God said, here I am, here's the master plan. Second thing we're going to see is that God's redemption master plan, his message, he then reinforced through the lives of the patriarchs. The patriarchs were who? They were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you're going to see throughout the book of Genesis that he reinforces this redemption message in the way that he interacts with them, in the way that he gets them to do, in the way that they live their lives. And finally today, we're going to see that not only did God do that in the way that he interacted with the patriarchs and with the shadows and with the types, but God also introduced it into Hebrew culture. Because what he introduced to them was things, something called the blood covenant. And a blood covenant was the most solemn and the most enduring of all covenants. When two people cut a blood covenant together, and we're going to look at what that means, it was for life. It could not be broken. And when God shared the redemption message, the redemption master plan, he shared it in terms of a blood covenant that he was making between himself and mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, 
we're going to see how these three beautifully come together and are fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you ready for it this morning? Good. So Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, you can look at the screen and we can read it together. And so firstly, we want to see how God initiates this redemption plan. Now, what's just happened? This is the very moment that Adam and Eve have blown it. This is the very moment that they've yielded to the serpent, to the Satan. They've eaten of the fruit. The very moment this happens, their eyes are opened and they realize that they are naked. And so they sew fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, saying, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And I will put, okay, and so, so what happens then from verse 11 to verse 14, there's this blame game that happens, right? You know, it wasn't me, it was the woman, it wasn't the, you know, it was the snake, etc. and kind of God lets that whole thing play out. And then he starts saying, good, okay, guys, as a result of this fall, there's certain curses that you've brought upon yourself, but there's certain blessings that I promise you as well. And these are them. He says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity, I'll put a conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife and he clothed them in it. Now, guys, what I want to do is I want us to have a look at this passage of Scripture and just dwell here for a moment. The first thing that's important to notice is that what Adam and Eve did immediately, as soon as they blew it, what did they do? They immediately said to themselves, we've messed up. How can we fix this? Can we get this thing fixed so that when God comes back, it can all be good? When he comes back and he walks with us tonight like he does every single evening, we want it to be good. Why? Why was there that call inside of them? There was that call inside of them because the enemy was able to steal their intimacy. The enemy had stolen their mandate, but the enemy could not steal the fact that they were still created in God's image. And so that image of God inside of them cried out for restoration. Now their good works amounted to fig leaves. They tried everything they could, but all they could do was have a very poor way to cover their outer nakedness. And as a result, when God came to visit, when God came to talk and communicate, they felt shame, they felt embarrassment, and they hid themselves. You know, folks, it's that image of God inside of us that leads me to believe that there is not a single person on this planet that is a pure and complete evolutionist. Because evolution to its nth degree says survival of the fittest. And survival of the fittest says, you know what, that's life. If you're weak, you get pushed aside and eventually you get trodden over and you die. That's how it works in the animal kingdom. The alpha male rules until a stronger male pushes him out and takes his place. And no one sheds any tears in the animal kingdom because that's just what it is. It's the it's survival of the fittest. But something inside of us, no matter who you are, you can be the most ardent sinner. Something inside of mankind cries out for justice. Something inside of mankind says when I see pain and I see suffering and I see devastation as a result of war or famine, something inside of us cries out and says, this isn't right. 
If we were true evolutionists, we'd go, survival of the fittest, tough for you. But it's that image of God inside of us that dictates that we don't apply that evolutionary theory to its nth degree. And that's why ardent capitalists will reach a point in their life where they create these massive foundations, not to make more money, but to give something back and make a difference in the lives of people. They could be absolute sinners. It might just be their version of good works and leaves. It may be. But there's something inside of them. There's the image of God inside of them that cries out to say, I need to do something good. I need to serve. And so this image of God inside of Adam and Eve cries out for restoration. But their best attempts fall significantly short. But what does God do? Firstly, it wasn't Adam and Eve that sought him. He sought them. He said, I'm taking the first step. I'm going to make that first step and step back into your world, Adam and Eve. I'm going to make a difference in your world because I'm God and I'm the only one who can fix this. Second thing he says is he makes them a promise. He says, guess what, guys? It's going to be tougher. You're going to experience pain in childbirth. You're going to find it hard. You know, before the, the earth would just bring forth its bounty for you. Now, Adam, you're going to have to sweat and you're going to have to work really hard. These are part of that kind of serpent bruising your heel because now the earth is under his dominion. But guess what, guys? I've got a master plan and you win in the end. In the end, you win because through your offspring, through Jesus Christ, you will crush the enemy's head. Yeah, he'll make life difficult for a season, for a few thousand years. But ultimately, you win. You crush his head. And then finally, friends, what God does is he reveals his pattern for redemption. He shows them a shadow of what that ultimate sacrifice is going to look like. How does he do that? He says, listen, those leaves don't work. So what does he do? He probably takes Adam and Eve with him because up until that moment, he hasn't got... And he takes them and he says, something's got to happen. And probably in front of them, he slaughters a cow or a lamb. And he strips it of its skin so that he can make a garment to cover their outer nakedness. Can you imagine the devastation, the realization that Adam and Eve went through in that very moment? Up until that point, there'd be no death on the earth. Up until that point, everybody had lived together harmoniously. Adam and Eve realized the impact of what they had done, how they had sold out, and how they had kind of broken that intimate relationship with God. And as a result, God showed them that their works were not going to, their good works wasn't going to cut it. God showed them right there and then that a price would have to be paid. There are wages for sin. God showed them right there and then that that price was high. That price was death. It required the shedding of blood. And God showed them that if it wasn't their lives, it would have to be someone else's life or something else's life. That cow, that lamb had had no part in the process with a serpent. But that lamb was an innocent substitute in order to cover their outer nakedness. What was God doing? He was giving them a shadow. He was saying he has an outline of the ultimate redemption plan because this is how I cover your outer nakedness, your inner nakedness, your inner spiritual walk with me. That inner intimacy can only be restored through Jesus Christ. But I'm giving you a pattern. I am showing you right now in this sacrifice 
to cover you outwardly what the inner process is going to look like. And what he did right there and then is every single time that Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every single time they sacrificed an animal according to God's pattern, they were in a sense extending their faith to say, God, I know this can cover my outer nakedness, but I'm trusting you that ultimately my inner nakedness will be covered too. Do you see the shadow? Do you see the pattern that God is showing Adam and Eve right there in Genesis chapter 3? So, folks, what about types? Well, he then goes on through the book of Genesis. And now when you read Genesis, go and look out because you're going to start seeing Jesus everywhere. I want to use just one example. There are many examples, but I want to use one that's one of my favorites. And that's when Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, it's important to understand the context because if your mind's immediately going, how can a God, a loving God, an honorable God, a moral God command Abraham to do that? You've lost a bit of the plot at the beginning of the story. The context of this is remember that Abraham lived at a time where the moral law had not yet been passed down from God. That happened five, six hundred years later. Abraham lived at a time where it was customary, where it was common. It was part of the culture for human sacrifices to be made to gods. It wasn't godly, but it was part of the culture of the day. So when God demanded of Abraham to, to offer up his son, it wouldn't have been a foreign concept at that time that Abraham lived. But Abraham knew that God had promised that through his son Isaac, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Abraham also knew that if God said, kill your son Isaac, Abraham knew that God would find some way to raise him up to fulfill that promise. And so this was Abraham's faith being tested. God was saying, Abraham, will you trust me to fulfill all the promises I gave you by offering up your son Isaac? And that was God testing Abraham's faith. But God was doing more because God was showing a type of Jesus on Calvary. And so let's go through this and let's see the correlation between Abraham and Isaac and God and Jesus. So Abraham had one son. That one son was Isaac. God had one son and that son was Jesus. God commands Abraham, he says, I want you to go to a place called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. That's where Jerusalem was eventually established thousands of years later. Abraham loads the wood onto a donkey, and together with two servants, they set off for Mount Moriah. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a colt. At the foot of the mountain, God says to Abraham, leave the donkey, leave the servants, you and the boy are going alone. When Jesus faced that final time on the cross, it was a transaction between God and Jesus only. No one else was involved. In fact, the rest of the world and Jerusalem was covered in darkness at that time. Abraham loads the wood onto Isaac's back and he makes Isaac carry the very wood up the mountain that he is going to be placed on and sacrificed. In the same way, Jesus carries his own cross up Mount Calvary to a place where he is going to be ultimately sacrificed. Isaac is a hundred years younger than Abraham. Is he 15, 20, 30? We don't know. But believe me, if Isaac, wasn't, if Isaac wanted to resist, 
he would have been able to outfight, outrun, outmaneuver Abraham. Abraham was a hundred years older, but yet he resists and he trusts. In the same way, Jesus says, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Isaac, going up the mountain, says, Dad, I see the flint, I see the wood, but where's the sacrifice? You see, he had been discipled. Abram had taught him about God's pattern for an acceptable sacrifice. And Abram responds by saying this. He says, God will provide himself the lamb. Jesus is the lamb for sinners slain. It took them three days to get to Mount Moriah. For those three days, Abraham would look at Isaac and he would see him as dead. And we know that Jesus was dead for three days before he rose on the third day. But folks, that's where the illustration stops. Because as Abraham is about to take the knife and plunge it into his son, God says, stop. Why? Because God cannot allow that to go any further because Isaac himself needs a redeemer. You see, Isaac himself carries that gene, that sin gene in his blood because he comes from the same blood from Adam. Isaac himself needs Jesus to redeem him and restore him into relationship with God. And so God says, stop, and Abram turns, and there's a ram stuck in a bush, stuck in a thicket. You see, Jesus was the only one who qualified to be the perfect substitute to carry the sins on our behalf. Friends, don't you just love the Word of God? Don't you just love to see Jesus throughout the Word of God? When you pick up Genesis this week, just go and start looking for Jesus, and you'll be surprised how many times you find Him. So folks, you might turn on me and say, okay, so how does this apply to me? You told me that there's this blood covenant, you know. Um, How does this work? Well, you see, the way Jesus made his promise and confirmed his redemption promise was through a blood covenant. What was a blood covenant? As I said, it was the most enduring, the most solemn of all covenants. Let's say, for example, Eureka and I wanted to form a blood covenant together. What did that mean? It meant this. What we would do is we would say we want our lives to become one. We want our families to become one. We no longer exist as individuals. We exist together. When they see Loreco, they see Dorian. When they see Dorian, they see Loreco. We are one. We are fused and we are merged together. What would you do? We'd exchange robes. Robes represented your authority. The more authority you had, the smarter your robe was. That's why Joseph had a coat of many colors. What Jesus does is he takes away our filthy rags and he clothes us in robes of righteousness. We would exchange belts. Now, that wasn't to keep our pants up. That was to hold our weapons. What I, we'd be doing is I'd say, Loreco, my strength is yours. And he'd say, your strength is mine. Jesus says, I take your weakness and I give you my strength. And that's why the word of God says that when we are weak, then we are strong in him. We would cut right hands and we would mix our blood together. What we would be doing there is we'd be saying, no longer is it just my blood. Our bloods fuse together. You, Loreco, are now in me and I am in you. We are fused together. We are no longer separate. We are one. And when we get born again, we are washed by the blood of Jesus. We climb into him and he climbs into us and he fills 
every single part of our being. We'd make a scar. That scar would be a sign for the entire world to see. Lareko scar and my scar, and we'd know the two of us are in covenant together. When Abraham had a blood covenant, when God did a blood covenant with Abraham, the sign was circumcision. That was the sign that the Israeli people had that said, we are separate, there's this covenant between us and God. When we get born again, he circumcises our heart so that we are not the same, that our lives now reflect the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We would declare, we would exchange names. And that's why Abram became Abraham, because the H out of Jehovah was taken and placed into Abram to make him Abraham. And in the same way, when we give our lives to Christ, we become known as Christians, little Christs. There would be a declaration of the covenant terms. We would share all our assets and all our liabilities. Everything that is mine is his. Everything that is his is mine. He doesn't ask, listen, I'm about short this month. He just says, where's our credit card? And he goes and spends, right? Amen. And that's what it is, except we don't bring much to the party. He says, I'll take your death and I'll give you life. I'll take your sadness and I'll give you joy. I'll take your pain and I'll give you health and prosperity. You see, so there's this exchange. We uh, eat a memorial meal together. And that's why once a month, at least, we have communion. Because we reflect on what Christ did at Calvary, that covenant that was, broke, that was broken on our behalf. And then we would plant a tree. Why? To mark the spot, to mark the occasion. And there would be a sacrifice, and we'd pour the blood of the sacrifice upon that tree. And that tree would grow, so that at all times we could look to the place, point to the spot to say, that's where it happened. And Jesus was crucified on a tree. And his blood marked that tree. And that is an example of a blood covenant. That blood covenant was between God and Jesus. The Father and the Son. No one else was involved. And so you say to me then, but then Dorian, how do I walk in that blood covenant? How do I walk in that plan of redemption? If that was a transaction between the Father and the Son, how does that work? And there are many examples of blood covenant in the Word of God, but the one I want to dwell in and, and, and finish with today is the blood covenant example between David and Jonathan. David is one of Saul's greatest warriors. In fact, probably the greatest warrior. Saul loves David until he doesn't. Why? Because David is honored. David is loved. David is respected. And Paul, Saul becomes bitter, full of pride, and he starts hating David. But God has done something very special between David and Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. And the two of them love each other so much that they form a blood covenant together. They commit their lives to each other. They commit their lives, and they, this lasts from generation to generation. Many years later, Jonathan and Saul die on the battlefield. Not fighting David, but they die on the battlefield. But as a result, this leaves Jerusalem open for David to come and take his rightful place as king of Israel. Saul's family panic, they rush away, and Mephibosheth, who's Jonathan's son, is dropped by his nurse in this whole panic, and as a five-year-old, he becomes crippled for life. Mephibosheth, they run off, and they end up 
staying in the wilderness. In the wilderness, I'm sure Mephibosheth must have hated David. This was the man that had stolen his place, stolen his land, stolen his wealth. He probably hated David. David one day says as king, he says, listen, are any of Saul's family still alive? And he finds out Mephibosheth is still alive. He sends word. Chariots arrive. Pick him up. Mephibosheth reckons this is it. It's over. I'm get, you know, I've hated this man my whole life, and now I couldn't avoid him any longer. But when he comes into David's presence, David throws his arms around him, and he loves him, and he kisses him, and he says, Mephibosheth, I had a covenant relationship with your father. The promises that I made him are yours if you want them. Mephibosheth says, but I don't deserve it. I've hated you my whole life. I've cursed you my whole life. David says, I don't care. Because it's not about you, Mephibosheth. It's about the, the promise I made your father. But Mephibosheth has a choice. You might think it's a no-brainer, but he has a choice to make. He has to say to himself, I was wrong about this man, David. I cursed this man, David. I need to repent. I now need to decide, do I want to be with this man? Because David invited him right into the palace, gave him back all the land that his grandfather had. He has to decide, am I going to change my attitude towards this man and walk in the same promise that he made my father? Or am I going to go back into the wilderness and live the sorry life of existence? You see, Mephibosheth didn't deserve it. Mephibosheth hadn't done the covenant with David. But because Mephibosheth was the same blood as his father, Jonathan, he was able to walk in the promises and experience the blessings of as a result of what his father had done. You see, folks, in the same way, when Jesus hung on that cross, and that transaction was between the father and the son, as Jesus hung there, he was 100% God and 100% man. Mary impregnated by God, which meant that right there, he had human blood. Right there, that covenant that was made between the Father and the Son, not only was he spotless, not only was he completely holy, he was a completely innocent substitute, but because he was 100% man, you and I get to look at the cross and we get to decide, do we choose to walk in those promises or not? And God's calling and he's saying, choose life. Jesus is standing there and saying, I've paid the price. What are you waiting for? You see, friends, we have a decision to make. Do we choose to walk in those promises or do we go back to the life in the wilderness? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the beauty in your word. We thank you that your word confirms itself over and over and over again. We thank you that you showed us Jesus so clearly from the very first book of the Bible and you reconfirm him and reconfirm him over and over again. If you're here today and you sense God is calling you out of the wilderness, you sense God saying today's the day that you have a choice to make. Today's the day you either choose to keep living in the wilderness or you choose to say, 
I want to walk in the promise that you made with your son at Calvary 2,000 years ago. You'll know that's you because there'll be a wrestle inside of you. On the one hand, it seems like a no-brainer, but on the other hand, it means saying no to the beliefs that you had before. Saying no to what you thought about God before. Saying no to the bitterness that you've held towards Him or others. And it's saying, God, I don't get it yet, but I choose to embrace the promise of Calvary. If that's you this morning, would you just quickly, where you are, just raise your hand because I want to pray with you and I just want to know who I'm praying for. If you sense God calling you today, would you just quickly raise your hand? Just wave it at me so I don't miss anybody. I see that hand at the back. God bless you, my sister. Is there anybody else? Anybody else here? This is the most critical moment in your life. Nothing else matters because this will define who you are for eternity. Anybody else? I see that hand, my sister. Thank you. I don't want to miss anybody here. We're going to give this, we're going to give this a few more seconds. Anybody else? Hallelujah. Church, could we all stand? And if you raise your hand, would you please be brave? Would you please bring your things and come to the front? Because I just want to give you a big daddy hug here. And I just want to pray for you. My sister, there we go. At the back there, please come and join us in the front. Let's give them a hand, amen. If you are here, if I missed you, please come on out. You're going to be brave? Amen. Congratulations. Well done. Amen. Word of God says the angels rejoice. Before we pray, I just have a sense that God wants to do one more thing. I have a sense that He wants to give us a new love for the Word. Just to fall in love with His Word because that ultimately is what needs to guide. Every prophetic word, any kind of things people tell you, it's got to be laid up and guided against something, right? It's got to be guided by His Word. I just have a sense God wants to take us deeper in His Word. If you want to join me and just say, God, let your word become real to me, will you just raise your hands? And we're going to just say, God, speak to us through the pages. Speak to us. Lord, let your spirit reveal truth to us. So, Father, we just say, God, give us a love for your word. Fill us with it. Lord Jesus, we just pray that every single thing, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. That those words might become alive, jump off those pages and grip our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord, I just pray for these two amazing people, Lord Jesus. Lord, we know you love them. You've got a plan and a purpose and destiny. And God, from the very foundation, from Genesis chapter 3, you saw both of them standing right here at this time. And you said, I have a plan of redemption for you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.